1: There's a level of reality where everything
0: dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's really fun. very profound. Very
1: Expanding reality.
0: Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have the honor of sitting down with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. She has written a couple of incredible books, which of course will be linked down in the show notes. Uh, The first one being Wild Connection and then Raised by Animals. She did a segment on D.L. Hughley's show for like three years, a weekly reoccurring segment. She's an animal, behavioral scientist, author, and a science communicator. And she is absolutely fascinating. She works on biological deterministic elements, Uh, she has her PhD in ecology and evolution. We talk about some incredible stuff on this episode and how she is able to relate What happens in the natural kingdom specifically with animals and how to integrate it into our lives and use it as a model that's very beneficial for us is unbelievable, guys. You will totally love this conversation. Like I already said, all the ways to find her will be linked down in the show notes. If you would like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do that as well at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is going to be linked in the show notes also. That's where all socials, Rockfin, uh, merch, all that kind of stuff is going to be down there. So without any further ado... Let's just get to this incredible conversation, guys, with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are extremely excited to welcome to the show Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, PhD, here to chat with us. You wrote an incredible book, well, a couple of them, Wild Connection and The Raised by Animals. I'm extremely excited to talk to you. Uh, So before we get launching into it, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Oh, Brendan, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So a little bit about me. Well, you know, I took the scenic route into academia and PhD, um, working in sanctuaries. I always knew I loved animals and that has never changed. Uh, and so, you know, I've spent my whole life just trying to figure out how to be close to them and, and share what I learned about them with other people with the hopes that, that by, I think what I kind of converged on was that the more we can relate to each other and other species, the more we can take care with each other and other species. And if you can't relate to something, you can't protect it, you can't appreciate it. And so I've spent the last several years and through those books, Really showing how we suffer the same problems. We, we all have to make a living. We all have dramas. We all have challenges, whether we're dragonfly or human being. And, you know, how do we navigate those situations and those challenges uh, to live the best lives that we can.
0: You know, and you follow natural law on this, which I absolutely adore, because um, a lot of humans have a lot of hubris whenever they think that we're the hierarchy, we're the dominant species on this planet, that we can't learn anything from the natural world. But you disagree strongly, as do I, and you do some amazing work to point that out. It is interesting how many lessons that we can learn. And even the ancients knew this. You know, They learned a ton about how to live their lives by observing animals in the wild. So tell me about your favorite example of that.
1: Oh gosh, well, probably, you know, I'm gonna go straight to dating and relationships. Um, and I think in Wild Connection I, I, I sort of started off with I made this observation about my own life because I studied for my research, I studied mating systems and 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 social dynamics. And so I I knew all the ins and outs of of how animals form relationships, you know, and make their families. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to make dating work and, you know, relationships work. And I thought, this is crazy. I, I'm a smart person. I have a PhD, you know, what is the problem here? Why do I keep making bad choices, worse choices than a chicken? So the chicken is my um, go-to example that I love because, You know female chickens they don't just like fall for any rooster they're pretty picky and we tend to get these messages that we can't be too picky we have to settle and all these things and and we pick the wrong kind of traits to pay attention to and a female chicken would would just not make this error um (laughs) and so i thought okay maybe if i approach dating more like a chicken I might have more success and and then I just expanded that to all the other kinds of issues that we face in, you know, attracting a mate, keeping a mate, having a relationship with a mate. and, uh, and and you know you, I found all of these other species and the way that they approach problems and how they deal with things, and I started to implement them. I kind of did a little experiment and you know I still am not in a relationship <laughs> but I had way more fun and it was all more positive. you know all of the interactions, all of the relationships that I have had were much better. Uh, Simply by sort of following these principles and then I expanded it, obviously, to other areas because other than legal documents, there's really no scenario that other species don't face Mm. that we face.
0: And and you're right. And they're very, very tapped into behavior, um, a lot more so than a lot of us. And that's why we need animal behavior scientists and behavioral scientists and things to kind of point out the obvious things that animals just know innately. Right. And it is interesting when you talk about the courtship and the mating. And I think of the birds of paradise every time I think of um, mating rituals and stuff and how the males, you know, have to be so ornate and over the top. And they like do all these dances and stuff. And it's incredible to watch. And I know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, And the chicken thing is interesting, too, because we have chickens out here on the ranch and something i observed was uh if we don't have a rooster then the hens take over in a very bad way like there's a very interesting male female balance dynamic that goes on there as well because the hens will take over if they don't have any you know strong male role models or figures in their life and then they just they're real mean to each other you know and um so they kind of boss each other around they'll eat each other's eggs they uh it's you know and that's where the term pecking order of course comes from so it is interesting kind of uh just observing these facts, even for us out here on the ranch, it's just things that before I even knew you, I was like, man, that's interesting the way that they interact, right? Yeah, and, so, and have
1: you, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but have you ever had a, a female chicken become rooster-ish, like yes. where she actually grew yeah, the the red, the the comb? And because some females will become, like what we say, appearance-wise, physically- looking like a rooster.
0: Now, we hadn't made it to that point because when I found that out um, and we had just lost our main rooster, our OG Kevin. He was so cool. We love this rooster. He was just like the first one that we got big Americana, you know, gorgeous with sleep on our car. You know, I'd have to wake him up to drive to work in the morning and stuff. And um, <laughs> just incredible. But yes, whenever he went down uh, just from old age, he was like a seven year old chicken. I don't know. He was just very old for a male. Um, and he uh, just went down natural causes, all that stuff. But yes, uh, one female in particular started to stand up. Uh, they fought for a long time. And then, yes, she started taking physical attributes on. And then we we got a new rooster and that kind of all calmed down, which was great. Um, and then, you know, we we would hatch our own out here and like half of them would end up being roosters anyway. So we had so many chickens at one point that they would break off in little groups. Like this one rooster would have his little, you know, set of six or seven hens. And you need that also with a large population. Again, just these kind of ob- observations in nature are unbelievable. And I love the work that you do. So what, what got you started in this in particular?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I used to take that sort of finger wagging approach, um, with, with people about how they have to save whales and save tigers and don't be a bad person. And surprisingly, that doesn't really resonate with a lot of people. Um, you know, when you tell people how horrible they are, they don't really want to listen to you. And so <clears throat> and then when I, you know, sort of became an educator, because I'm also a, a professor, uh, I started lecturing at people. And it, it turns out they don't really like that either. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I really just started thinking about, well, what do people care about, right? What do pe- We care about our families. We care about our relationships with, with our, our social relationships, with friends. We care about our reputation. And we care about, resources. So how we can earn a living and take care of our basic needs. And we care about sex. Like we just do. That is true. (laughs) And so I thought, well, meet people where they care about those things, because that's what matters to people. And it turns out that's also what matters to other species. You know, those chickens, I feel like we're going to come back to these chickens a lot. They, they make friends and their um, position in the group, matters to them individually. Some also are curious and some are more apprehensive. So they have different personalities. And they might splinter off in ways that complement each other. And so these aren't just random groups that form when you have a lot of chickens. They they form by certain principles and that meet the needs of each of the chickens. And every now and then you get a chicken that's on the outs and bullied and picked on really horribly. and And they suffer. And you know what? We get bullied. We have situations in schools and in our workplaces doesn't stop when you become an adult, unfortunately, uh, where we get bullied and the same things happen. We feel isolated. We get stressed. We have, you know, we might lose our hair. We get sick, all these things. um, They're very traumatic. And so I just started thinking about how can I because ultimately I care about other species. And it's not that I don't care about people, but I firmly believe that. Our lives are better when we feel connected to nature.
0: 100%. 100%. I completely agree. Uh, My wife and I moved out uh, to the country about six years ago and to seek just that. And we found it. And it's unbelievable. Like, we'll just never go back to the city. And simply because we're so immersed in nature out here. That was the whole point. It's not necessarily to escape civilization it's to escape civilization to reconnect with nature and that's that was our goal and we live much 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 happier lives like i recommend this for everyone that's like the one thing anybody's like what should i do with my life buy land go out into the country somewhere and live on at least a couple of acres get yourself some chickens you learn a lot and it's incredible so um the way that we can relate our behavior to what we see in the animal kingdom is very interesting as well, because there's some pretty barbaric tactics that take place in some animal groups. And it's one of those things to where we, we learn the lessons from that. And then we could say, okay, well, we'll transcend that and maybe do it a little bit better, right? You're given an example. Um, what is one of those examples that, that you can think of just off the top of your head?
1: Well, so this is a really interesting point. And I, I I would like to add that other species do it much better than humans yes. as well. So yes. right, we can find everything. And so, for example, you know, something that's often brought up is, oh, humans are more closely related to chimps, and we're very chimp-like, and there's all this war and aggression and chimps. And so that really reflects who we are as a species. So I fundamentally disagree with this, right? Just because we're more closely related to something doesn't mean we share all the traits of that species. And when we look at human societies across the globe, there are many human societies that are peaceful and cooperative, what we would call egalitarian, right? Co-equal, non-violent, um right and and then we have others that are more dominant so hierarchy structured which is the one you know if we're in the United States that's the reality of what we live in um but we should be able to expand our reality and think about how we can achieve the things we say we want to achieve by modifying our behavior. And so baboons or chimps are brought up a lot. I tend to, you know, it could be any species that has a dominance hierarchy. They're pretty, it could be pretty violent. And that happens because a few or one individual can control access to resources. And those resources can be, you know, people, or they can be stuff that we need, food, water, space, all the things that we need. So zebra, I mean, most people don't think zebras or horses are particularly aggressive or violent, but they actually are. So there's a lot of fighting that goes on in in zebra, uh, if you're talking about Grevi zebra that live in small groups, you know, outside individuals always want to come in and take uh, uh something away, and so there's all this fighting between groups and then you can have fighting within groups. And I think that we think that we don't do these things. But when we look at how we actually live, um, we've constructed a society that supports aggression, stress, and violence. And yet we say that we want a peaceful, cooperative, happy family, children, society. And we just don't behave in those ways. What it means is we would have to share. (laughs) Things would have to be fair. Right? So... I like to look at both sides. What are the things we're doing that mirrors what we see in other species that are following the same kind of power structure that we have in many of contemporary human societies. And alternatively, what are some species that have done it differently and are very, very successful by cooperating and sharing and where fairness matters a lot
0: you think a lot of uh, aquamarine type animals that do this. I know whales, uh, dolphins, highly intelligent, highly cooperative, and it's fascinating to watch because it is, like you said, and I love that you pointed out the juxtaposition of observations here because you're absolutely right. Uh I leaned to the lesser, but of course, there's examples on the other side, of course. And there's a lot of interesting things that we can learn from the animal kingdom to relate to our own lives. So uh, what is your favorite thing outside of relationships and love that you have learned from observing the animal kingdom, maybe just in a passing, you don't even teach on it. You're just like, ooh, I need to implement that. And it's just something that's changed your life.
1: Okay, this is going to sound like it's not positive, but it is. Boundaries right so boundaries what does that mean right how do you cooperate and share and and be fair and maintain boundaries and so tit for tat keeping score these things that we have in our sort of you know colloquial or or vernacular kind of conversation we say are bad things but i learned by seeing this in other animals it's absolutely imperative for cooperation to stand and succeed, that accountability happens and that boundaries are put in place. So what does this mean? Well, I could choose, I could choose vampire bats or I could choose capuchins. They both have, and even chimpanzees have very strong sense of fairness. Meaning if I help you and then when I need help, you don't help me. I never help you again. Or I forgive you after I retaliate, I retaliate once and forgive. And then I give you a second chance and I help you again. If you fail to help me again, I never interact with you ever, right? So this has important implications in all levels of our lives Uh, from our friendships, right? If it's a very one-sided friendship, Uh, where you're always the one giving and giving and helping and doing and all of these things and we what we do is we build up resentment and we get angry and we basically end up creating a toxic environment in our own bodies and in our own minds instead of setting a boundary going oh i'm sorry i helped you once you didn't help me now when you need help i don't help you that's the retaliation then i forgive and i inform you we can restart we reset and if it happens again, we're no longer friends. There's, there's no therapy needed. There's no, you know, extended conversation. There's no years of resentment and misery that need to accumulate. It's very clear. And I think that I learned to, to do that in a way that didn't make me feel like I was a bad person. Because that's the other thing. We have a cultural narrative, you know. That's the wonderful and, and and sort of sometimes horrifying thing about human societies is that culturally we have a lot of things that have happened rapidly, but our, our sort of biology and our evolution uh, at, at the bi- biological and social level hasn't caught up with where cultural society has taken us. And so there's a mismatch. We're just not matched well for the world we've created and what we really need to be doing.
0: God, I could not agree more. It's the... the unauthenticity that I've been talking about a lot lately, about this divergence from nature. And I think it's a deliberate thing. I think, yeah, you have your choice and you can do that if you'd like, just like the cooperation element into uh, animal groups, right? So you can do one of two ways. Like survival is easier. Things are better and greater in a tribe. That's why we have the soul tribe that we talk about here on the show. Uh, And But if you're on your own, you can still survive and that's fine. But what these animals do is that they teach the other animals how to interact with them and what's acceptable in that group, in that clan, that tribe, whatever. And so uh, if you go against that, and like you said, it's a, okay, I'll forgive. And those examples were perfect. I love it. And then you're just done. And then we'll move on and we'll find somebody else that does want to play and does want to listen to how we need to be treated because we've already told you that, hey, you can do whatever you want. But in this group, Here's how it operates. Now, what's interesting is when we relate this to humans is you can find a lot of groups that will empathize and resonate at whatever frequency you want to, the good and the bad, right? The What serves people and what doesn't serve people. But what's interesting about it is doing a lot of bad stuff and negative things kind of serves more people than it should and I think that you kind of gravitate towards this and you you do this and I mean you could just go on forever when you talk about the psychology of human beings whenever it relates to group interactions why gangs are started from you know kids feeling ostracized and left out then you get in this group and then it's this these formations these tribes and it helps them survive better it's a survival mechanism um so I i like I said, love your work. And of course, I, I don't know if I mentioned it already, but I'm going to be linking all the ways to find you, your books, of course, your website and everything down in the show notes. You did a really cool segment on the D.L. Hughley show for a few years uh, called uh, "What Think Like a Human, Act Like an Animal. Tell us yes. about that experience. That's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> it was amazing. So, you know, it it just kind of came up spontaneously because um, uh, the comedian D.L. Hughley loves animals and uh, I was telling him things about animals and and you know people and they said we're we're going to do a segment think like a human act like an animal and and the premise behind it was of course people would call in or or write in their problems that they were having Um, in, in this uh, particular iteration for a few years, it was, you know, their relationship problems and I would give them an animal solution. So for example, you know, if you suspected your partner, I mean, there was one that was really memorable. A woman um, said that her husband once a month wanted to vanish uh, for the weekend somewhere. Without having to let her know where, or to be communicated with, and I, you know, and of course, uh, you know, DL and, and the co-hosts, some of the men were like, "Well, he's a spy, of course, he's a <laughs> yeah, CIA that's, spy." That's where my mind went. Yeah, I, I, that seems to <laughs> you know, be, and I'm like, yeah, that is pretty unlikely, and and it's not even that he had to be doing anything nefarious. It's just that. I brought up the example of red-tailed hawks. So red-tailed hawks are monogamous, as are many raptors. And uh, they, but they only get together during the mating season. And then they have their me time, right? They have their alone time, and then they have their together time. But when they're together, it's like a social contract. So when you get married or when you're in a relationship that's committed, you have a social contract, which is to inform the other of your whereabouts. And you can hear, uh, so for the listeners out there, whenever you see a pair of eagles or hawks, and you might hear one calling, a little while later, you hear the other one calling back. This is like text messaging, right? Or picking up the phone and being like, yeah, I'm over here, I'm hunting for dinner. Like, don't bother me, right? The only reason that a red-tailed hawk won't respond to its partner or where the partner doesn't know about its whereabouts is they're either dead or they're with another hawk. So, and when you have babies, so if you have baby hawks, there's just, you can't afford to not know where your partner is because you can't successfully raise your family without your partner. And so this was my response was like, Like, he has to still let you know where he is and how to get a hold of him because you have a family together. And this is part of the agreement. It's not that you can't go away and be, you know, have your little whatever it is your alone time is or with guy friends or, or whatnot. But you still have to maintain that social contract of here are my whereabouts. Here's how you can get in touch with me. And I respond to you when you call me. So so that's an example. (laughs)
0: It's so interesting and it's spot on and that's perfect. Now, do you get those submitted to you early or are you able just to recall those um, as they get proposed to you and you're like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this jellyfish that does this one thing that relates exactly to what you're talking about?
1: (laughs) Well, so these days I have a library in my brain of of many, many animals and all of the things that they do because I did that show. Uh, But I did try to always choose different kinds of animals. So I got those questions uh, usually an hour or two in advance because I always go to the peer-reviewed literature. I go to the science. So everything I talk about, there's a paper. Some scientist was out there watching those birds, uh, right, and and figuring out what they're doing, and somebody was watching that frog that turns blue after it mated, which would be great as a way to find out if our partner was cheating if they came home blue. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, But so... So I did get them in advance. And, and that was so that I could also use a diversity of animals. I didn't rely on chimps and orangutans and, you know, the great apes or primates, the things we think are more similar to us. I pulled out beetles and sand spiders and, you know, worms. And there were a lot of birds because birds have a lot of drama. As you know.
0: They do. Yeah, a lot of drama. It's like, dude, ladies, just lay the eggs, hang out, just walk around and eat bugs and stuff, right? It's crazy. Yeah. Relax. (laughs) Yeah. Settle down. (laughs) Um, So I I watched one of your uh, videos that you did. I want to say it was just a few minutes long, but it was you standing in front of a canyon and you were doing almost like a, it was like a presentation, but it was, you're just so lighthearted. The way you presented the information was so cute. I just kept laughing at this part where you called this, I think it was a hairless weasel. What'd you call it? A dirt puppy?
1: Oh yeah. I love sand puppy. That was it.
0: I was losing my shit. I just thought it was so funny, and this, and then you have the picture of it up there, and you're just, you're just bopping off all this wonderful information. I mean, it, it's great because, like, I love, you know, like Steve Irwin. I mean, and we all love these people that that report this information in such an exciting way that it makes you excited about it. But when you start relating things to human behavior, and we can see that we're not that different after all, and that we all kind of have the same desires, the same needs, and um, similar ways of interacting with each other, and we can actually learn a lot from each. Each other, This is where I think the way you integrate that portion of your work into the mass populace is fascinating. So um, I just want you to just keep talking about animals and stuff like what's another really cool fun fact that you know, that's not that popular.
1: Yeah, that's not that popular. Hmm. Okay. Uh. Well, and I will say that I zoomorphize people. I don't anthropomorphize animals. Ah, Right. Zoomorphize. So um, I I do. Well, I kind of you know assume there's a story behind whatever an animal is doing. But I think you know. Well, one of the videos was on flirting. And so what I think is a lot of people don't realize that animals flirt and one animal in particular flirts a very similar way to how in grade school some of us might have experienced flirting I don't know if if you ever experienced this or did this, but sometimes you know and it's a weird message like if a boy's mean to you that means he likes you
0: yes yes yeah, right weird. So it's
1: a very strange message that we carry through and and it shows up in all our romantic comedies um as well but sometimes it would be throwing something at you right like throwing a pencil or paper or whatever and there's uh, a brown capuchin monkeys in brazil there's this one population the females it's ridiculous how they flirt with males and they also get like like pouty like downright pouty if they don't get attention from the male when they want it so first of all they stare you know they just gaze uh uh you know without and we know that this can be awkward right in in humans if you're just like
0: (sighs) a little bit yeah
1: right and just staring (laughs) and staring and staring and ironically you know or maybe not so ironically it's sort of like you know turn away from from that so when that doesn't work they pick up rocks and they throw rocks um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the mail to get his attention and if that doesn't work they run right up to him and pull his hair. <laughs> it's
0: like playground so, stuff. Playground. Oh, flirt. totally. Yeah. Totally
1: playground stuff. And this is this is not advisable ways of human flirting, right? Like not when you're an adult. And I mean when you're a kid you don't know any better, but I would say that that as an adult, you know, this is not the approach one should take when flirting with someone. Don't run and pull their hair. Don't throw rocks at them and definitely, you know, try to manage your staring, Um, you know. So so that's a fun one. And then I was just uh, it was just popped into my head and then I lost the thread. Um, I'm going to be doing an episode on kissing because I think that we need some do's and don'ts. For kissing
0: you know i heard this fascinating thing about why humans kiss uh, or why any animal kisses it's because our bacteria actually chooses our partner so the bacteria <gasps> in our mouth kind of that we're swapping your bacteria knows if it's a suitable mate if they're going to be you know you can tell all kinds of things biochemically with this so actually it's your bacteria that chooses your partner which is fascinating to me
1: oh my gosh i love that you said this because i also think our the way we smell our armpit bacteria yes. yep. Plays a huge role in like deciding to be attracted to another individual. And I have wanted, I love that you did this. I've wanted to do an experiment where. It sounds like a gross experiment, right? but where I blindfolded the per- and a bunch of p- men are blindfolded um, and I sniff them and then I kiss them and I don't look at them. Right? Not not what they visually look like. We think that we make uh, we have the saying right. You fall in love at first sight. No. Yeah fall in love at first sniff. Yep. Yep. And we can smell you. There was a man I used to date that I could smell a mile away. And and I mean that in a good way. Yeah. yeah. Not in a bad way. Like my radar, which he's in the area. Yeah. Where is he? <laughs> Where's you my know, mate? and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure we would have made awesome babies together, right? And that's about it. That's probably all we would do. So it's a great tool for picking a great genetic match. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the right partner to raise a family together with.
0: You know, it's and it's crazy you say that about the smell thing because, um, yeah, and this is just behind the curtain here. Uh, my wife, her armpit smell, it drives me nuts. Like, I love it. Like, I, you know, don't want her to wear deodorant. Like, it's really, and I've never been like that with anybody else. But with her, it's so different. Now she'll, like, run up to me. She'll be like, check that out and, like, lift her arm, you know, and I'll smell it. I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they've done studies on this. This is very, this is absolutely accurate. And there are many, many studies done on this. And even the females... Uh, they've they've given T shirts to of different guys, and then they smell that, and then they go on a date, and it was some ridiculous uh, percentage of people that ended up in really long lasting relationships whenever they determined to partner that way. That's yep. fascinating to me. It's so deep. It's so biochemical. It's n- it's so just natural. I love it.
1: Yes. And it can be altered. So I don't know if if you know this part, when you pick your partner, if a woman's on birth control, it alters her sense of smell. Yes. And so this is problematic, right? And other animals smell each other all the time. And they get loads of information. Like, I mean, if you have a partner and you smell their mouth other than kissing them, you know what they ate. And sometimes you're like, could you lay off the onions? Like, (laughs) you know, um, so scent is this really powerful tool for gathering information. And when we kiss, uh, it's not only maybe that our bacteria like each other, but we're, we're getting all kinds of information where you are hormonally, you know, where you are health wise, um, you know, all the way down to the way that you kiss and whether or not that's compatible. And sometimes if you're kissed by someone unexpectedly and you have a a negative reaction where you're like, ah, you know, I just want to get that off my tongue. Um, you know, that's probably a sign that they're not a good, a good match for you. Um, so, but yeah, it, you know, all of these things, uh, animals kiss to swap information, swap food. I studied prairie dogs and I still study prairie dogs and they kiss all the time. And uh, they, we call it a Greek kiss, right? It's so the very French. The French yeah. kiss. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, we're not sure, but we think they're getting um, identity information, right? How, who are you? Um, are you my friend? You know, what did you eat? Can I have some? That's also, you know, some people think that kissing kind of emerged from sharing food between mothers and offspring.
0: That makes sense. And, you know, uh, it's funny too, what you said about smells and stuff it's um, I go up to uh, new horses and donkeys and stuff like that. And I do it to mine too. Every time I greet them, pretty much, I'll breathe into their nose and they breathe into mine and we exchange breath. And this is because we've noticed that that's what they do to each other in the wild, right? And so this is how you familiarize yourself. This is how you greet each other. And it's one of the coolest interactions when you have this gigantic horse come walking over to you and he just sticks his nose in your face and you breathe in his breath, he breathes in yours. It's this amazing like swap of life force, right? I I love it. And these types of interactions are so cool and they're so pure at their core. Um, What do you think about... Whenever people look into animal research and they say, oh, well, you know, animals are just like that because they're barbaric and because they don't know any better. And we try and transcend that. But then we have all the drama and we have all the crap. And like you said, we get in abusive relationships and we just continue to get abused because we won't see the signs that are all around us in nature to take that sign to move on. So what do you think is going on with that?
1: Well, so first I would challenge that other animals are barbaric. I mean, the reality is other animals go to great lengths to avoid conflict. Conflict is expensive and it's risky, right? So they have a ton of, 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 things in place to resolve conflict before conflict ever happens. Now, when you see that fail and there's an actual physical confrontation, a physical altera- al- altercation, uh, there's a few things that come into that. Somebody didn't want to back down. They thought it was worth the risk. Right. And so that you ever heard that saying, is this the hill you want to die on? Yes,
0: yes, yes. Right.
1: It's the same thing. Right. And, and if we learn like, is this the hill I want to die on? Probably not. It's not really, am I willing to accept the consequences of continuing to press on? So I would challenge that other animals are not barbaric um, in in the way that they interact. Sometimes what we see looks barbaric, but virtually no one's injured in the interaction yeah it just gets right. they might be yeah they might just be testing the strength it looks super you know violent and and it can be i mean it does happen I will say that female barn swallows um uh, are are not- or, or um you know are notoriously aggressive to other females i mean they they really no holds barred some of them rip feathers out it's a mess right and it's it's not it's not something we would want to model <laughs> um but I think that if we think about, and they also, when they have a conflict within a group, let's say you're in a social group, they come to a quick um, reconciliation because to live in a group means you have to cooperate. And that doesn't mean you're never going to argue, but it does mean you need to learn how to make up. And they don't do some of the things that we do, which is, you know, punish you with silence for like weeks. Um, withhold affection forever, (laughs) right? There there might be a time period where they don't want to sit next to you, you know, for a little bit. Patos monkeys notoriously are like, well, I'm going to sit over here for about 10 minutes. And then they have some ritual that shows the conflict is over. We're good now. So, you know, those are things that I think, um, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, sometimes we have this view that we are uh better than other species as you've said a few times and that we can transcend all these things but i sort of flip it and say well look at these animals that resolve a conflict peacefully without violence or if they've had a an argument and they don't necessarily use words to to you know hurt each other um so we don't know if some of them may might be when they're vocalizing calling each other names who knows Right. <laughs> I don't know. But but when they have a conflict, they resolve that conflict pretty quickly because they recognize it's too costly to maintain aggression and the group structure at the same time. You just can't.
0: Yeah. And to hunt for food and to survive. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. How they OK, let's address it. Let's move past it. You know, let's go. And it is interesting. And this is just something we observe in. Uh, our species of animal as well is that, you know, guys, let's say for instance, the males usually go out and they'll settle it with a fight. They're like, okay, let's get this over with, it's barbaric, and then let's do it. And then there's other people around to kind of make sure that they kind of get the aggression out that they need and then usually they're best friends afterwards. Usually, it's like a bonding experience that was something tragic and you wanted to kill each other and now you experience that and now it's over and now you can move forward and now you've added to your tribe a little bit, right, with some better understanding. Uh, females, though, and we've talked about this several times, uh, they they... Generalizing, of course, ladies, we're not talking about everybody here, but they hold grudges. Yeah, our chickens were, God, some of the, they were so mean to some of them. They just pluck feathers out of them all the time and just beat the piss out of them. And it's horrible to watch. It's just like, ladies, can we just hang out and get along? Um, and so that is something very interesting that, that can be observed in nature as well. Just the difference between male and female energies in any species, you know, but it's a balance. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and I just would add um, really quickly that... you know, um, for some of us human females, we don't understand how men can, you know, have this sort of altercation and then go like immediately go have a beer. And you're just like, how are you doing that? Right. And, and yet, you know, I think the lesson there is, you know, so, so to what extent are grudges useful? I mean, we're not the only species that holds grudges. And I, I will say at least in, in crows, they're big time grudge holders and both males and females hold grudges. So in that case, they both act the same way. Um, but they, they definitely hold grudges and they communicate and ruin the reputation usually of other humans, um, for all crows everywhere. They're like, those people oh, are bad people. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and they'll like follow you around and stuff and they'll let everyone know. Yeah. Don't, yes, don't mess like, with that. Like you're
1: terrible. See like, everybody beware of that person. Uh, and so, You know, thinking about, so I'll think, I'll, I'll be, you know, maybe because I'm a female and I tend to hold grudges. (laughs) I try not to, right? I try to not hold grudges, but I think that sometimes the reason we might hold grudges is to share information for other, to others about how to not be negatively impacted. That's going to be my positive spin using crows as the, uh, as the, the species there on, you know, holding grudges, but if you're just holding a grudge to hold a grudge and not, it's not being used to inform others, right? Then it's not really holding a grudge, right? It's, I mean, sharing with you that my interaction with this individual was not positive. You should beware, and then you should let it go. I don't think crows are running around mentally, you know, doing mental gymnastics and angst and anger over whatever they, it has its purpose and then they let it go.
0: That is what's interesting about it, though, because they're highly intelligent. And so it's it's fascinating that uh, something as simple as like a grudge that we would say, you know, just get over it or whatever. It has to be useful. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Because like you said, nature is about expediting uh, things to make them the most efficient possible and in the coolest way possible. Uh, something I wanted to uh, touch on with you before we wrap here was... Uh, Concepts like the Jungle Book or like Tarzan, where it's these human beings that were raised amongst animal populations, and I know it's fictional, but I'm I'm pretty sure there's an account of a child being raised by wolves, right, out in the wilderness somewhere. I think that's what those stories were based off of, Uh, and it's these kind of things where then you take that child out of that environment and reintegrate it into air quotes society. And they just want to go back. They don't understand the rules and the drama and the grudges and stuff. Uh, no crows in the jungle, right? I mean, the forest creatures. But uh, it, it seems like that then they, they're taken out of that environment, they're brought into this, and they just want to escape back out into nature because it's a much simpler life. I mean, I get, I get the familiarity thing to it, but I think there's more to it psychologically than that. Uh, are there any cases that you can think of where that's happened in real life rather than just in fiction?
1: Um, You know, not not for an an entire lifetime. Right. I mean, I think that there was a situation I was trying when you were talking, I was trying to remember if it was lions, there was a a girl, a young girl that was sort of being protected for a short period of time. and I think it was lions, but I'm not sure. So young children, uh, well, it depends. I'm, I don't want to say this in case people with young kids want to set them loose off into nature. Yeah. You know, yeah. that will end badly 99.9 times out of a hundred, you know, Mount Lion might just see it as a snack, for example. Um, and I've seen a tiger stalk a young child at a zoo. So, yes, you know, yes. this is this idea that, um, you know, young children or infants won't be harmed out in nature and that all these wild animals will band together and protect them and raise them and teach them things is definitely fantasy, right? I would say that if you want to learn how to live from animals, then, you know, Listen to me, and listen to other, you know, behavior people who who might be sharing that kind of information, and watch other animals, right? Um, they, but but I don't think that there's been this uh, kind of scenario in the real world. I do think when people spend a lot of time in nature, I think it's very very hard to, and I'm speaking for myself as well. To live in the society that we've constructed and the machine that sucks you in. Because, you know, and I've been thinking about this for a while, you know, toxic sort of busyness. Um, people are, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Well, then you must not be doing something right. Because when you look at other animals, they got, they got shit to do. They they got stuff to do in a day, right? They got to take care of their home. They got to take care of their food situation. They got to maintain, if they're social, they got to maintain their social relationships. And then they got to rest. And the first thing to go, if, if they're short on time, is their social relationships. Uh, because they, they got to eat and they got to sleep. Those are, those are the two, you know, key things. And I feel like we have constructed this modern world that values productivity and we fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be productive. And when you spend time watching other animals and you just sit and let's say you were to follow a duck the whole day, just, just for a day, I'm going to follow this duck. And you were to kind of write down how much time it's spent doing everything. It would spend a lot of time eating. It would spend a lot of time resting. It would spend a significant amount of time cleaning itself. And it would spend some margin of time interacting with other ducks, uh, and, and, you know, I feel like we've come into this sort of cultural society. That's like, you have to work, have to be successful. You have to, and, and, and people don't rest. And then people don't maintain their social relationships and they become angry because they're not even doing a job that they want to do. It's like asking a duck to be a squirrel. Squirrels have a job, ducks have a job, but nobody's telling the duck it has to be a squirrel. And, you know, I, I sort of, when I've sat in the forest, I mean, I sat in the forest for five years for like 14 hours a day and and I can't take cities anymore. Like it's really hard for me to be in a city um, with the noise and the people and, and the stuff. And I also, I can't work like eight hours straight you I mean, watch duck. It's not like working eight hours straight, it does a little bit of work, it does a little bit of cleaning, takes a little rest, then whoop, wash, rinse, repeat. And, and that's sort of how I like to work. So it's a good thing. I'm in academia because I would, I would fail epically in a nine to five position. I don't know how to do that. I might work eight hours a day, but I construct my day. You know, I probably work more than eight hours a day, but I, I build it in a different way. And I feel like that's one of the things why i think that taking back your time happened for a lot of people during the pandemic we're seeing people change their thinking about the work they want to do how they want to be with their families and their friends and um demanding a certain a fair level of wages for the work that they do and even changing careers completely because they had a minute to stop and rest and i feel like certain forces make us all stay so busy <laughs> that we, we don't stop for a minute. We can't, we can't, we got, we're busy, 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 busy. And then we make our kids so busy and they never have a chance to stop and think. And, Yeah, so I see you nodding.
0: Uh, I'm so with you on this. It's crazy. Uh, Yes, I think the Industrial Revolution, all of these things, yeah, it's cool. They brought us like lights and stuff, and that's pretty dope. But they made it so unauthentic, and they detach you so much from... Even the simplest things such as rest and not being too busy because, yes, what is the saying that, um, you know, a rocking chair will keep you busy, but it doesn't get you anywhere. So you're you're doing a lot of stuff, but you're not doing anything, you know. And so it is this detachment from nature, which I think has been very deliberately done. And I think, yeah, they offer you kind of a little bit of... um, I don't know, a creature comfort of some kind that you didn't need anyway. It just kind of makes things, I guess, a little easier in, in certain respects. And then you set a whole system up that revolves around people wanting things just to be easy. But the problem is, and I think where we got screwed up is, is it's not easy. Like it, it's the furthest thing from the natural cycles of your body. Like you said about the eight hour thing, completely agree. That was designed. That was set up like that. And the school systems were set up like they are to produce people that were pacifists in that way and that were okay with snuffing out that part of them, that little voice that says... This is bullshit. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, this isn't right uh, because human beings used to be a lot different back in the day. We used to, you know, sleep for a certain amount of time, wake up in the middle of the night, be very productive, and then our circadian rhythms were just completely different. And it was a way more natural, way more organic, and I, I would argue, way more fulfilling uh, way to live your life. And so I'm exactly like you. I, I don't yeah. like the cities. Yeah,
1: and healthier, and healthier. And here's the thing: when I said rest, too, I don't mean sleep.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So there's sleep. I forgot to add sleep. So there's rest and then there's sleep. And, you know, I think, um, gosh, what you said was, was so right, that that we got things that made our lives, quote unquote, easier. And then we're addicted now to certain things. And in many ways, we've lost the confidence to to live our lives in a different way. And we don't know how to get out of it now. Many people wanna get out of it. And so they're stressed and they're angry and, and they don't even know why, they just are. And the reason is because they're not connected to how they really should be living. And they don't know how to get there. And even if they did know that, they they don't know how to get there because you have to fight so hard uh, to to just feed yourself and your family and and, you know, and and once you're stuck you're almost stuck you're almost trapped in that whole life and and so how could you possibly say you know what i'm gonna just take rest and go look at butterflies right on what your 15 minute break right from your job um and so i think that's why people so many people Really are sort of revolting against going back into the office. They're like, I spent two hours on the road. Animals don't spend two hours traveling somewhere unless they actually are migrating right, right. to another spot because they couldn't get food where they were. You know, they, their travel routes. I think it was the traveling salesman problem. Mm. Um, we've we've looked at how animals move through space, and 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 they 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 try to do everything optimally, right where you get the greatest return for the minimum cost. And if, if the cost is too high, um, either something's wrong in the environment and they die, or they change course and adjust their behavior, if that's possible. And that's also where you know, for me, it's so imperative because so many species, including humans, are being pushed to the limits of what they can adjust to, um, both socially, um, culturally, environmentally. And there's only so much changing you can do before there's just something wrong with the environment. And I feel like at a society level, there's just something wrong with the environment.
0: <laughs> Could not agree more. And the metaphor I was thinking of whenever you were talking about this was is that we the moderns society I guess the metaphor to use would be that we are on like in like a boat it's not even an island like a like a soil type of a sand island it's a manufactured artificial boat and that's where society is we're detached from the land which is our natural environment we're put into an environment that we can't survive unless this apparatus is there to keep us alive but it's so far away from what's really us that it detaches us so far that you just cling to it for survival it's not living it's surviving and that's those are very different concepts Concepts.
1: That's right. That's right. And some animals are just surviving, you know, I mean, a lot of birds are just on the edge every single day. Hummingbirds, like they're basically like this far from dying every single day right? And, and yet they do, they do what they do. And, and, and they, you know, they spend their time resting and finding food and, you know, um, and they're, they're as fast paced, busy uh, an animal as you can get. I mean, I think there's a mouse that's a little bit faster and it dies young. Here's the message, right? Live fast, die young. That's, that's the reality. And when you look at other species that live fast, they die young. And when you look at species that, have a much you know different rhythm to their life they are long-lived i mean i think orcas killer whales over 100 i think was the oldest female
0: right yeah it's like, insane. Those, like those sharks in iceland i think there was like a 400 year old one that they found i don't know how the hell you yeah. figure that out but that's very very interesting and probably the teeth. (laughs) Oh, then there you go. Of course I needed to ask you. Of course you would. Uh, You're like, yeah, it's just like this dummy. Um, but you know, uh, we have, um, we have, uh, hummingbird feeders by the dozen out here. I love those things. I'm making the stuff all the time and we don't use the red dye because you shouldn't do that. We make it the real way with sugar and hot water ourselves and to watch them is fascinating. And I learned a bunch of fun facts about, uh, hummingbirds like they are the only bird that can fly backwards which is fascinating the way that their wings flap is absolutely interesting i think their heart beats at like 1500 rpm a minute or something like it's insane yeah they're they're so interesting
1: they are and boy they they are one of those that we would look to on how not to be total dominance aggression i it is the only bird other than a swan and a canada goose Who's tried to attack me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You got attacked by a hummingbird? You got dive bombed?
1: I did. No, it it literally hit my binoculars. Oh, wow. I was because I had the nerve to sit by its bush. Ah. And now I had been, in all fairness, I had been at that bush first. (laughs) I'd been there. They migrate. And I was at the bush watching my prairie dogs for months before this hummingbird arrived. And it was like, I am not having this at all this is my bush they're super territorial yes right because food is hard to come by and like i said they're on the edge of death so as long as you know the machine that we've created keeps us just on the edge of death we will be angry and territorial and aggressive because we're fighting for every little scrap we can get and this hummingbird slammed into my binoculars startled me first of all because it was just coming and i was like dude like, seriously, I don't want your butt. I moved. I was just like, you win. It's fine. I'll move. So I sat under a tree and then I got pelted by pine cones by a squirrel who was like, not my tree either. And so I had to move again and I found a rock and then a coyote peed on my rock. So yeah, I just was losing every single step of the way. And I was like, where can I, animals out there, where am I allowed to sit? Yeah. You know, where I'm not messing with anybody. And eventually they were like, oh, that's just that human that sits here all day and doesn't catch anything. And I don't know what she's doing, but she's completely useless and she doesn't bother us. So we'll leave her alone, you know
0: it's so interesting because you adapt yourself to the animal kingdom You instead of like some people would have just cut that tree down with the squirrel in it fine I'll show you you know kind of a thing and there's a great uh, song actually by a band called Thrice and it's called Black Honey you should check it out it's it's exactly this idea it's it's someone's attempt and actually a belligerent attempt to control the nature around him and it doesn't end up well for him in the end so uh, but check that one out Black Honey by Thrice it's a great and in fact uh, listeners I'll link it in the show notes just because of reference here so that's
1: awesome and I, I you know I hadn't about it, but you're right. I, I sort of adapt myself to when I'm in, invading the space of other um, other people or other species. I do the I do the work. It's not their job to do the work. I'm the one asking permission to be in their space. Um, and and it's, it just doesn't even occur to me. It was sort of like just please, all right, like please don't follow me and keep biting me, like or keep attacking me. Like I would I would prefer that, you know. Um, but but eventually, they all just saw me as part of the landscape, and that was amazing because then they just didn't care that I was there at all. And when that happens, you see stuff.
0: That's when the magic happens, and I love in your resume. I think it said uh, intellectually, emotionally intellectual, and which I love that. And that's that's where that comes in. You're very intelligent emotionally by that just innate ability to to kind of chameleon into your environment, but really just to engage but not disturb. I think that's wonderful. And that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful model that you follow. Um, so I'm going to be linking all the ways to find you down in the show notes. I know that you got to run, but we will definitely have to do this again. You're wonderful. You're absolutely welcome on here any damn time you want.
1: Oh, thank you, Brendan. You are too. And I want to have you on Wild Connections so that we could talk about all the animals that you rescue. And we got to talk more about these chickens because chickens are amazing. So we're going to have to just talk about all the different animals that you have.
0: I agree with you. And I'd love that because we did. We got into incubation. We, you know, and had peacocks and we would incubate those. And those are a totally different thing. And that was really, really interesting so to raise these things. And it's fascinating. Uh, but yes, no, I would be honored, honestly, anytime. And like I said, you are welcome back anytime your soul tribe. So uh, thank you so much for your time. This is incredible.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I want to send a huge shout out and oodles of love to Dr. Jennifer Verdolin for spending some time with us on the show. Absolutely fascinating. I love her approach on her observation, how to integrate the natural world into us because we're part of the natural world. I know that sounds crazy to think about and remember, but uh, yeah, if you strip away all of the crap that's around here, we're animals and it's amazing how... Just simply remembering that can go a long, long way for your benefit and everyone's benefit, to be honest. So, all of the ways to find her will be, of course, linked down in the show notes, guys. Also, uh, this music that you're hearing right now, good buddy of mine, Vinny the Saint, his music is linked down there as well. Just check the show notes for him. Also, expandingrealitypodcast.com. If you want to expand your experience with us here on the show, that is the way to do so. It's pretty much a central hub for everything. All the ways to find us, it's all down there. So, check that out. So, go out into this beautiful, beautiful place this week, guys, and y'all take a look at the natural world around you and watch While you're doing that, apply some of these methods to your everyday interaction with other mammals out here, such as yourself. Uh, A good example would be to buy a coffee or a meal uh, for anyone in line around you or behind you, Uh, open doors, smile and be nice, you know, just visual cues that you're uh, not after someone or not a piece of shit would be really cool and reassuring. Uh, get out of the left-hand lane of course pick up a piece of litter because that's very important to all of us and beyond all of this guys go out into this beautiful place whatever it is and y'all just be good to one another thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time